You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. I'm Justin Vakula, and this is episode 55, Rationality with Kai Whiting. Kai joins me to chat about what it means to be rational, drawing upon his recent paper titled Are Neanderthals Rational? A Stoic Approach. We discuss similarities and differences between humans and other beings, what it means to be rational, scientific literacy, and the importance of learning. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Today's special guest, Kai Whiting, a university lecturer and researcher based at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. His specialty subjects are modern Stoic challenges, sustainable energy and materials. Find more information about him, including means of contact, and his recent paper discussed in this episode. Let's move on to our conversation. All right. Thank you for joining me today as a returning guest on the podcast. Thank you. It's just so great to be here again and hopefully contribute a little bit back to the Stoic community on this new research paper that we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So we're continuing discussion somewhat along the same lines of inquiry or discussion following your other paper on Stoicism and Sustainability. So we'll be talking today about your more recent paper, Were Neanderthals Rational? A Stoic Approach. So what led you to write this paper? First of all, it sounds like it has nothing to do with the paper about sustainability and, <laughs> and consumption. So what, why, what is the connection? The connection was simply that looking at the earth in a bigger way. And in terms of uh, humanity, we seem to see that ourselves as special. We seem to think that we have certain rights and it's not a stoic perspective but that's how our development when we talk about sustainable development we seem to emphasize the importance of our development as opposed to development of other species mm. or the uh, you know leaving the earth so that it can regenerate we often say okay but i will leave the world to to regenerate but if people are poor then we need to help them get rich so therefore we need to sacrifice the earth to help these poor people along the way to wealth so every time that you have a sustainable development, there's like this tension point between what humanity requires to prosper, not necessarily in the stoic sense, but in the economic sense, and then what the world needs or the earth needs to recover. So I, I started to ask, well, why are we so special? From a stoic perspective, what makes us special? What makes us human? And what makes people think that they can somehow lift themselves above the earth and, and dominate that. Is that a stoic perspective? Is that a historical perspective? Is that a religious perspective? Where does this foundation of ideas where we are superior come from? So when I looked in the editors, people would say, are they not even human? They died out because uh, they weren't clever enough to evolve like we did misinterpretation that we evolved from Neanderthals, which is not true. We evolved from a common ancestor and we were alive together. So even the idea of 
why in even in evolutionary terms we think that we are the pinnacle of evolution for example that we are the the species where all other species to should look to and evolve towards right? right so even in the scientific world the way that diagrams are drawn where or the t-shirt you see of that you know progressively <laughs> monkey coming into man why is that we have this view of this linear development with human you know humankind or mankind particularly at the pinnacle, the most important, the most significant. And how does that transform or translate into how we use resources or how we consume things or how we eat or the decisions that we make when we try to say, there's a cost-benefit analysis here, we need to look after the environment. By the end of the day, we need to be wealthy. So there was that sort of that link to it. So uh, that's why uh, I decided to write the paper with my, with my colleagues. Right. So there's some philosophical underpinnings and questions, assumptions that are being made about what makes us human and rationality on the stoic approach was a very important feature of being human absolutely i didn't know that i'm not a philosopher so it was not something that i was equated to or i knew in passing but i didn't know enough to really expand on why i think humans are special as a, from a stoic perspective so i i'm aware of like the judeo-christian islamic view of being special like god gave us the ability to to dominate all our animals and plants and to go forth and multiply. But I, and I know that from a stoic theological perspective, that wasn't the case, that the universe is the greatest rational being that we have. So, and then with that, all of us have the, the spark of Zeus. So the question is, okay, what does it mean to then be rational? Right. And are we the only species that has been rational or that could be considered irrational. A lot of people say, well, my dog is rational in the subsequent discussions or cats are rational because, you know, they understand or they can feel what we feel or sometimes they, they look angry or sometimes they express some emotion or sometimes dogs, for example, are very courageous. They protect their owner. Aren't they rational as well? So it was like, what is the difference between, say, what some people might consider to be animal uh, rationality? It's not a stoic necessary uh, term and what makes you human so we looked at like okay we're the we're the human where can humans identify uh, justice can an animal do that so when you say this is not fair can an animal say this is not fair mm-hmm. when we trial somebody in court what what mechanisms do we use to understand whether that person is guilty that they were aware that they committed a crime you can't try in the sense that you can't trial a dog right so you couldn't take a dog to court and say you were unjust to me. You, <laughs> right. Your lack of self-control stole from other dogs the food in their bowl. No one would ever consider that as an irrational response from a dog, right? In fact, the fact that the dog would want to eat the meat in other dogs' bowls would be quite a rational response from a dog. So it was like, what is the difference between that rational response from a dog who's eating that meat and a rational response from a human being saying, I need to operate with self-control? Mm-hmm. So like humans, you noted in your paper that Neanderthals engaged in activities such as art, creation of tools, burying the dead. These might be things that are associated with rationality. Well, the creating of tools is something that they also do. For example, certain birds would create very rudimentary tools, but they are not able to create tools to create tools. So they were, they're not able to hold in their mind, I need to create a tool in order to create another tool that would then give me what I want. So in terms of burying the dead, certain animals have memory of death and they will, they will mourn the dead, but they won't necessarily act upon the symbolism of needing to bury them or show their respect in that way. And of course, art, you could argue that a 
some certain animals have some artistic tendencies, but they're not really use art to communicate or express themselves in a way that humanity does. So, for example, you might write a book so that people, when you die, people that come after you can read that book or your diary and understand how you fought and how you acted and how your, what your values were. And Marcus Aurelius would be an example of 2,000 years later, we use what he wrote to evaluate how he felt at the time. Mm-hmm. An animal would have no understanding of, if I do this piece of art, four generations later, another dog will understand how I felt or another dog will have some kind of empathy. But then Neanderthals, we don't know for sure that Neanderthals had the same level of empathy, for example, or symbolic reasoning that we have. We can say that they are more human in terms of more homo sapien, but to say that they were identical to us would be like a misclassification of of their own version of humanity. So we're also careful in the paper to say they are more human, like in terms of more homo sapien, but they're not necessarily homo sapien. They shouldn't necessarily be judged in that way. But of course, we would judge them from that perspective because it's the only perspective that we have. We can't judge them from a Neanderthal perspective because we're not Neanderthal. And with this idea of rationality, we come up with these circles of concern that you have mentioned in your paper, idea of duties, obligations, some sort of awareness of our environment, awareness of others. You touched on empathy. That has something to do with being rational as well. I would say that it's it's rational in the sense that you're aware as a human being, uh, as a homo sapien, you're aware that there are other people act and think like you do, and that you can communicate an idea, and you would really try hard to communicate not just the words that you're using, but the intention behind the words. So a human has that ability to understand, okay, I need to communicate an idea, and that person needs to receive that idea and, they need, and I have to have the premise that they are rational enough to understand what I'm requesting um, from them. So if you speak to a four-year-old, which is an irrational being, you wouldn't talk to them in the same way or expect them to be able to empathize with you. So when you say, for example, please don't eat the ice cream, I've just told you not to do it, you would t- talk to them in a sense of uh, punishment and reward, whereas you wouldn't with a 25-year-old man who happened to be eating the ice cream out of your fridge. You'd say, well, what? <laughs> Why are you here? Why are you eating my ice cream? Don't you understand that I had to pay for that and that uh, you've come in and took my ice cream and I only have one and now that I can't now I can't eat my ice cream. So yeah, as human beings, we have to assume that there's this kind of rationality that everybody has in a stoic term, that spark of Zeus. The ability to be coherent and consistent and the ability to strive for virtue even if they choose not to. So somebody could choose like, I don't want to be virtuous, but we still recognize that they could strive towards a more virtuous position. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the assumptions in the Stoic text, the capacity for virtuous behavior that, that everyone has that regardless of maybe a social class or standing in society, a profession, that this is a characteristic of being human, a characteristic of reason. Exactly. I mean, Aristotle would say that that wasn't the case, that your ability to, to express yourself fully as a human being is dependent on your gender, is dependent on your nationality, is dependent on your wealth it's dependent on your social status. And Stokes stripped that away and said, no, it's dependent on your ability to be human or neurotypically human. So the ability to have brain development and, and the societal development to understand that you are human, that you are rational, that you are virtuous, and it doesn't depend on anything that came before you. Just being born human is enough for you to progress if you choose to. Whereas, whereas Aristotle said, no, you, you wouldn't even be able to do that. Even being a manual worker would reduce your likelihood of being able to act virtuously, right? Because you wouldn't be able to think in the sufficient way to become virtuous or to achieve eudaimonia. 
Right. And there might be a correlation between larger brain structure or skeleton size and rationality as well that you mentioned. For example, people often think that chimpanzees are like the most intelligent animal except us because of the evolutionary process uh, that they're one of our ancestors. But then dolphins, for example, are much more, much more intelligent. They have the ability to undertake much more complex tasks, which unfortunately, because of their environment, we don't necessarily understand. So in, with Neanderthals, the brain size is very, very similar to uh, modern day humans. I have one caveat, though, that some of the extra bits of brain size do correlate to improved sight or improved metabolism. They were very lean, so they put a lot of emphasis in their functionality on staying lean and being looking like American football players, I suppose, mm-hmm. or rugby players or boxers, as opposed to, say, what Americans would call soccer players. They really, <laughs> uh, their evolutionary process was much more, or arguably much more physical, much more uh, being more uh, well adapted to the physical surroundings, whereas the Homo sapiens opted for, loosely opted for, the, the evolutionary tr- direction was more to do with a cognitive capacity. So that's the argument, that though the brain sizes are, of the two are similar, that doesn't mean that the structures within the brain are the same size, and their redu- reduction in size is linked to some of the cognitive processes such as communication. So to say that, oh yeah, we have the same brain size, that can be confusing because you say, well, how does the distribution of that brain reflect how they function? So yes, they may have the same brain size, but it's the same amount of cognitive function there. Part that corresponds to cognitive functions is reduced as it is in Neanderthals. Does that mean that they still are able to act as what we would call human? So that's a controversial topic, but it's something that's worth considering. It's not just brain size. And if that cognitive function is there, well, will all organisms use that cognitive function to behave in rational ways or to really exert themselves in the world, right? I mean, some humans might live sort of a lazy lifestyle, just sleeping, watching TV and eating TV dinners throughout the day and not really out and doing much, right? Where others will make much more of life. Exactly. And that's why the distinction in stoicism is only one is between the sage and the non-sage. There's no distinction in stoicism between, say, uh, ethnicity, there's none between, uh, if I was born in, say, the UK, you were born in the US. There's no distinction there. We're all equal. Like, we shouldn't have, say, that we are having at the moment where certain immigrants are not allowed in certain countries because they come from or have a certain passport. That is uh, something alien to stoicism. They would say, no, because we all uh, possess the capacity to be rational, we're all the same. But we do recognize the Stoics that certain people make more progress. Mm-hmm. and that they strive. And so a stoic is not called to treat everybody in the same way because there's certain people that choose to act in vicious ways, right? They choose to live in a society that is unjust or they choose, for example, to put their money in a tax haven, right? So you could question, well, that particular action, that isn't particularly just. Should I treat you in the same way that than the person who pays their taxes fairly or, or understands the importance of of distribution of resources. So you could call into question the behavior. What you wouldn't call into question is their humanity. Whereas when we put, say, quotas on immigration, and there may be reasons for doing that, you're not questioning their humanity or their actions. You're just questioning their passport. You're not asking, oh, did that particular person from that particular country, are they striving towards virtue? Are they acting particularly justly? You're just asking, well, which countries do they come from and then denying or approving the visa based on the passport they have in their pocket, which is a very strange way from a stoic point of view to assess 
whether a person should be allowed to move or not. Uh -huh. So it's that capacity for the virtuous behavior that's going to be linked with rationality. Yeah, if you're if you're unable, for example, so a child is an a child is irrational. Why? Because they are not able to recognize until I would argue possibly fifteen. I know some people say nine, but I'm not sure how intricately develops the idea of justice is in a child or self control. Or courage. For example, you might say a child is courageous, but are they courageous enough to understand the need to stand up to institutionalized discrimination? For example, would they would they understand the nuances of why that was important? I, I don't think that it is. So yes, if you if you cannot be coherent and consistent and understand that striving towards virtue, then you are not you're not acting rationally. But we do recognise that as stoics, because a four year old in a tem temper tantrum for an ice cream isn't acting <laughs> rationally. Right? right. And then the Stoic argument comes in, okay, if someone is unable to act rationally because they're a child or because they have a disability or because they've been temporarily, I don't know, they've been hit on the head and they temporarily can't act as if they would normally if they were rational, mm -hmm. a Stoic has a great obligation towards that individual, which we do recognize with children. We have a great obligation to care for them. If someone saw a child wandering the streets, with our natural instinct would be to go and help them, right? Whereas if we saw a grown man wandering the streets, maybe our natural instinct would be to stay away from them because we try and we recognize that a child is lost, whereas uh, the other person we might doubt as to what their intentions are or why they're wandering. But that also needs to be extended, for example, to, to disabled people. So we do recognize, again, that we're all capable of rational thoughts. And then those members of society that aren't, either temporarily or permanently, need special care. And that's why I think that uh, the Stoic circles of concern is important because it talks about obligation towards, to, towards people and doesn't talk about rights that we should maintain to keep other people away from us, which is, again, this kind of immigration issue with a visa. I'm not saying I'm anti-immigration uh, qualities. I'm saying the way that it's done is not necessarily Stoic. Mm -hmm. So we can use our rationality to gauge other people's ability, meet them where they are at, and in some cases, even instruct people or pity people. Uh, the Stoics talk about people who commit crime, who just live in corrupt ways, such as tyrants. Like, well, we could pity the tyrant. They aren't taking the right path in life. Maybe they've been deceived in some way that if only they knew a better way to live and were able to act on it, then they would contribute more to the social good. Absolutely. So you've hit the nail on the head there, that it's to identify those people that are moving towards a, a vicious existence, unaware of their greater capacity to, to do good, to act justly, to act courageously, to act wisely. In fact, in their ignorance, they're avoiding the ability to really uh, feel that fulfillment that only humans can enjoy. So when someone chooses to go against their nature as a human being to act rationally, to act irrationally, what they're really doing is they're robbing themselves from a greater sense of happiness, the eudaimonic happiness. So yes, as a Stoic who is progressing, you do recognize, even in your own self, well, today I got angry or today I wasn't particularly reasonable. And then you reflect as a Stoic, right, in your journaling or your self-talk, I could have had a better existence today. If I'd have acted more rationally, if I'd acted more reasonably, I would have been ha you know, progressing towards a greater sense of happiness and harmony. And I robbed myself. It's not such and such a fault. It's not the cat's fault. It's not a politician's fault. It's my fault because the impressions that I had have led me down a path where I'm walking, progressing towards vice today. Right? Mm. So we reflect that in ourselves. Unfortunately, we're more forgiving with, towards ourselves than we are 
to other people, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> we're, we're very like, when we do something wrong, we're very like, well, I didn't mean it. I, I know I'm not an angry person. I just had a bad day. But if somebody shouts at us in like the local supermarket, we must automatically assume that they're a bad person. <laughs> when we <laughs> see a drunk person in the street, we automatically assume that they are bad, you know, they must, again, must be a bad person. They got drunk because of their own choices. They're, they're in the situation now because they deserve it. Whereas in Stoicism, we say there's nothing about deserving. The fact is that we're all human beings and there's luck in the universe, right? There's the sense of randomness that we can't control. So sometimes we may do A, B, and C, and D, E, and F may occur. Then we do A, B, and C again, and that doesn't occur because the situation is slightly different. So in the ability to recognize the oneness of the universe in the stoic sense of the oneness towards rationality and the oneness of humankind, I think is is a greatest step that we can have towards justice, towards acting courageously when we see injustice, to striving uh, for wisdom when, for example, in a post-truth world, it doesn't matter uh, what the truth is, it matters who's saying it. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so which, I think uh, it's very, very much outside the stoic thought there, right? Or to just judge information for what it is and examine it and not, oh, well, so-and-so said it, so we're going to go with it or... You know, we're going to just disbelieve, right? It doesn't fit with my worldview, therefore it, it's not real. It's as about as unstoic as you can as you can get. And then when you have sides, so say left versus right wing, again, that's not a stoic position. The stoic position is to listen to reason, is to act on your capacity for reason and to say, well, is this right wing politician saying something that makes sense, that's factually based? or not if this is left-wing politician are they are they overemphasizing say inequality or do they have a point and i think as stoics we are we are driven to find truth because finding or seeking truth is a rational step because it's a rational step towards wisdom it doesn't mean we always find it and doesn't mean we don't get confused along the way but we do have that obligation to increase our wisdom and decrease ignorance and using that wisdom understand what we should do how we should do it, when we should act, right? And how our acting can enable other people to, again, obtain some sense of progress towards justice or to be able to stand up and be courageous themselves because some people may be more coward-like because they feel that society doesn't listen to them or society doesn't care. As Stoics, this underpinning of scientific fact and reason then leads, I think, to a society which is much more collective, which values the four virtues and seeks towards a more equal balance between what humans consume or how the earth should be treated. So I'm not, again, it's not a communist point of view that everyone should earn the same. No, but everyone should have certain access to materials and the earth should be considered uh, because we live on the earth, right? We don't need an earth day to recognize that we live on the earth and that we depend on it. <laughs> so I think I think human beings are the only creature that would need a day to celebrate the earth to remember they live on a planet. I, I think that's uh, quite a, a crazy the assumption that we are some way independent of that so when i looked at neanderthals it was like reminding myself and others that between the chimpanzee and homo sapiens humans today there were actually a lot of animals you know a lot of species that died out and unfortunately when they died out we then drew a very sharp line between what an animal was and what a human was because it was clear to us that chimpanzees couldn't communicate but say if a neanderthal had been able to communicate and did evidently have relations with us then can we so easily distinguish between uh, them versus us? 
Right. Because they would not have acted as human sapiens completely. They wouldn't have acted like chimpanzees either, but they represent something that we felt was human enough to mate with and have children with. So then that readdresses our, our special status. And then we then question, is it that we have special status because we're human or because we have, we have special status because we are rational? Good. So stoicism is encouraging an attitude of humility then to question our habits, to question our assumptions. And we could recognize that, yes, we've had bad information before. We've made some mistakes. We've had some oversights. So why not continue to question those assumptions and not just throw out information glibly or accept something so quickly, but to look into it, it it could be a difficult project. And it's certainly difficult for somebody to even question themselves and have some radical self doubt that might be an uncomfortable process that might not be up for doing that they might just be focused on other things instead. But for the Stoics, our ideas really about how we should live a good life, those are really important. We want to have good information so we can live more fulfilled lives. Yeah, because the, what is the alternative? If you stay stuck in a very dogmatic sense of the truth because somebody told you, then again, it's about robbing yourself from your own rationality. It's it's saying, I, I, I'm happy with whoever, whatever somebody else told me. It's not striving to seek within your own self the truth that is that belongs to you and belongs to everybody i don't think you can claim necessary to be stoic if you are not willing to un- admit that some of the fact things that you thought were true are no longer i i don't think that it's a it's a good stoic ground to stand and say everything i've learned until now that is that suffices and that's why we argue that <laughs> yeah <laughs> we argue that what you know when, when we say well what did Epictetus say well he didn't really say much because he didn't really know that Neanderthals existed so we, we can't go back to what Epictetus says when we make a decision about whether we think that Neanderthals are sufficiently rational to be classified as human because he didn't know and Seneca didn't know and Marcus Aurelius didn't know and right, right. Rufus didn't know <laughs> and so so take this I know it sounds funny but we do that with other things right I mean, the yeah. answer is quite clear that we don't, but we might say, well, how should we deal with our anger? Well, what did Rufus say? Okay, that's important. Have a foundation, particularly Seneca on anger. But does that mean I shouldn't then try to develop that in my own mind and what it means to me? We can use these ancient ideas in order to inform some new ideas, right? Yeah, you're not going to read about nuclear weapons in the Stoic texts or (laughs) some modern issues that have come up since ancient Greece. But yet we can still have a solid framework from which to start our thinking and look, oh, well, hey, this might be applicable to this topic. So let's use that uh, as part of the process of getting toward the truth. And I think when that, that's the point of the paper is that when you question what it means to be human, you're really questioning everything you know to be true because you're questioning your own existence. Like if you're an environmental leaning person, you can say, well, what are we doing to the earth? But you can never really truly understand the earth because you're not the earth. But to question what it means to be human strikes at the heart of your very existence. It challenges the notion of why you think that you have some kind of status in this current world or why you are classified as such and why is it that i am human and what makes me human and how could i become more human i mean if eudaimonia is the complete highest form of human existence then we're constantly asking ourselves as stoics how could i achieve more flourishing how can i live out the wholeness of the human existence available to me and that goes back to if you choose to live in ignorance then you're actually denying yourself the ability to flourish and if you deny yourself the ability to flourish according to strike four you deny yourself the ability to really live your humanity to its fullness not as full as the as the sage probably not 
possibly, probably not, and certainly not as far as the rational universe is in the ancient Stoic thought, but to get that step closer. So I think that's really why this paper is important. It's not really about Neanderthals. It's more about who you are and how you should treat yourself, other human beings and animals, like what you should eat or what you shouldn't. Right. And it has a lot of implications, as you've mentioned, in that, well, our our actions are affecting other people, they're affecting the environment, they're affecting other animals. And many people, I think, are in this thing of, well, I'm just going to eat what tastes good. And oh, this is just how it's been done. Or, oh, well, nature's brutal. So who really cares? Or we're the top of the food chain. So willy nilly, let's just do whatever. But you're calling for questioning of a lot of those assumptions. Yeah, the thing idea of that, that's what nature is about is a sort of social darwinism and there is a question that did darwin really talk about survival of the fittest in terms of competition or did he talk about survival of the fittest in terms of cooperation did the, the fittest survive because they were able to cooperate more and i would argue that yes chimpanzees are, are unable to cooperate either they, you know they have large groups but they couldn't cooperate on a, a million or seven billion scale it's not scalable the chimpanzee can cooperate with the 50 or 100 members in its tribe, but they can't cooperate, you know, they can't en masse get all chimpanzees throughout the world <laughs> to say, unless they're on Planet of the Apes, to protest yeah, yeah, against yeah. the human occupation of their planet, right? But the ability that human beings have, that Neanderthals had to some extent, but certainly what Homo sapiens have, is the ability to collaborate on the large scale. To say, for example, that we shouldn't cross a red light, you don't have to be only in the US to know, to know that, right? You can do that in any country across the world. I mean, it sounds crazy, but a chimpanzee would not be able to say, okay, to another chimpanzee in another part of the world, please don't cross that red light. And that red light will stop, <laughs> regardless of which country that you're in. So I would argue that Darwinism really points towards cooperation and the ability, our cognitive ability to express ourselves through art, to, ex- uh, to express ourselves in groups, to do something that we call cumulative culture in the, in the article with the idea that one human being can stand on the shoulders of giants and look further. So, you know, I never seen a cat talk to another cat and eventually four generations down the line, we have a new technology developed by the cat world, right? It just doesn't, ha- doesn't happen. They haven't invented a new uh, tin opener that can open their cat food faster than a human can, but we can uh, as human beings and maybe Neanderthals couldn't. So perhaps we should celebrate our cooperative instincts that has resulted from Darwinian uh, science rather than this competitive nature. So there is like a question within the scientific community, was it competition, was it community? But I think as a Stoic, you would say it was certainly cooperative because as being cosmopolitan, you are cooperative. You understand that you are a member of the human race and that like a limb, you only, you've, you're one part of a whole. So that's not competitive, is it? It's not a Stoic, right. Stoic view, it's not a, not a competition between the world. Them. Exactly. <laughs> so there's no, competi- there's no competition there. It really is a cooperative framework. So certainly to address those kind of issues and the Neanderthals so that there was less tension. Right. I've received these questions, particularly in ideas of foundation of morality or moral systems. And some people, particularly from religious traditions, have said to me, well, why even be good at all? Well, if you're just uh, non-religious, then what basis do you have to be a good person? Why bother? Or I've even heard such statements of, well, if God doesn't exist, I would just go out and kill people because life doesn't matter anymore, right? So here's some things like, well, maybe being good is in your own benefit and the benefit of others. And we would like to have a cooperative society and not see everything burned down. That seems to be a pretty good uh, rationale there. Of course, uh, when Neanderthals took care of their sick, so it's not even just a homo sapiens thing. Why would they do that? 
They obviously valued some of their members, even though there was no benefit to themselves. And when I hear religious people say that if God didn't exist, they would go out and murder people, I often say to them, well, I hope you don't lose your faith then. I tend to give them more quickly. credit. I don't think that they would actually do that. I don't really think that they've thought that through so much. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a Christian or Islamic viewpoint that you need that you need God for morale completely. There is a sense that I think that a lot of religious people say that God gives them direction in morality or shows them what some kind of morality is as a great if, if human beings are a reflection of God. Uh, so I don't think there's necessarily a conflict between religious thought and without God, there would be absolutely no morality. But I do understand that that's a, a nuance that maybe we shouldn't discuss here. Uh, but <laughs> I, I do think that Stoicism in the reflection of whether God made human beings or evolution did or both does show that there is that there is that ground for cooperation based on the fact that in rationality we need to be able to communicate with others so the fact of being rational is derived from our ability to communicate and our ability to communicate on a on a much more complex scale than any other animal that currently lives means that we've been able to cooperate and that cooperation has led to what we have seen today in in terms of modern development right and there's been a lot of moral progress in society as well as slavery goes away people have more freedom, more independence, right? We're not from like, oh, only those who own land can vote and well, indentured servitude and oh, well, that's just fine. And now we're starting to question those things and cut back on some environmental pollution and some damage and just really starting to ask questions about these things and say, well, maybe we should update our ideas that we have and make some adjustments as we go along. So we see that moral progress as this result of reason. Without reason, I don't think there would be any moral progress. I think that's an excellent point that you make. That's why also in Stoicism, we need to update not the virtues, because I think they're virtues for a reason. They will not change ever. But to certainly update how we view justice or how justice is formed, I, I think that is important. And there is some kind of tension point with it, like ancient Stoicism is best or one should only refer to Seneca or the best texts, I don't know if you've heard this, I mean, the best texts are always the ancient ones. And I'm like, it's not a case of the best or the worst. It's a case of being coherent and consistent and rational in your step towards eudaimonia. Now, some people might be satisfied with what Seneca says, and if that's the case, then excellent. Other people like me need a bit of both. We need to know, okay, what did Seneca say? That's my foundation. But how do I apply it? Maybe Massimo can tell me. Maybe Donald Robertson can tell me. So I think it's a, also a call for integration and a call for a wider scope of knowledge within Stoicism. And to readdress, for example, the idea that science or physics, which is more like natural science, is important because we talk a lot in Stoicism and modern Stoic circles about ethics. But without the grounding of what they would have called physics, then how do we understand the nature of the world around us in order to apply those ethics? That's why I think it was a coherent structure in the first place. And we've kind of diminished a little bit the role of science in and scientific literacy in how we dictate what reasonable values are and how rational, uh, rational progress or moral progress can be made. Right. And now you see some popular trends or disturbing trends, shall we say, and ideas about vaccines causing autism or the earth being flat and that some people are really missing the point on these matters and just distrusting scientists. And they're thinking, oh, well, it's just a conspiracy of information. We can't really trust what they're saying. And there are chemtrails in the sky and a lot of these other things that just seem to go by that to me seem really wild that these ideas are that popular. In the UK, they had the conference of flat earthers in Birmingham like last week. And I have friends of mine who are flat earthers, the people who believe the earth is flat. And they're my friends because 
I, I grew up with them, basically. They remain my friends, and people say, well, how is that possible? And, and the problem is partly that science is not well understood by the, the general public, and that is, I would say, partly science's fault. So the scientists, like people like me, we have to put our work in open access because if they can't access the information, how can they evaluate it? So there's this good argument that the public pay uh, for research through their taxes, particularly in Europe, I'm not sure the US, but they pay for research to be done. And then we put that research behind paywalls where the researcher is not paid either. So the researcher doesn't get one penny from their research, but the great editorial, editorial boards like Elsevier do. So it's the idea of like one of my commitments as a stoic is to put all my stoic research in open access. And I can understand where these flat earthers come from. I mean, they haven't, they are not able to access the great body of knowledge that has been accumulating over the last, in the case of physics, well, before Isaac Newton, right? Because they can't get hold of that information, they become worried about it. And they learn, they learn that scientists are over there, I'm over here, we can't trust them, they don't trust us. And really, it's for the person who is perhaps the most rational, which I would say in many cases is the scientists, but not necessarily, is to come over there and say, actually, I'd like to share this with you. I'd like to talk to you about it. Before they become entrenched in a certain viewpoint. In the same way as a scientist, because I've heard scientists say, I have no, why should I teach the public mass? I don't have to teach my hamster mass. This is not high school mass, this is difficult. Why should I have to teach them that? That's not my obligation. If they're intelligent, my hamster, what's the point? And literally people are saying that. And that's not only very ignorant, it's very unhelpful. I, I don't see uh, members of the general public as as like, less intelligent than, than me as a scientist or me as a historic researcher. I see that I had different opportunities in my life and ch or chose differently and became a researcher. Mm -hmm. But then as a researcher, my obligation is to share that with you on a podcast and to break down why I did this research or why I think a certain way. But a lot right. of scientists don't see it that way. And that's why we have flat earthers and that's why you have this mistrust. And then politicians who don't get access to the scientific material or have reasons not to engage in it will then at the moment, build that mistrust into something that becomes chaotic and what we see in post-truth. But I think if scientists can now take the step and say, actually, we never said that. This is what we actually said. Here's the information. Here's, it's available to you. And we are standing in the scientific community against the publications that refuse to allow our work to be openly explored. But that takes time. So it's a bit of both. And I, I wouldn't just blame the general public for that or this crazy idea of uh, people thinking the earth is flat. That is partly uh, our fault as scientists. Right. It's an interesting situation we find ourselves in with the internet and how much open access information there is and how people can just learn about so many topics whereas maybe a decade ago what you were going into libraries encyclopedias and there wasn't as much out there now you have all kinds of podcasts youtube material audio books there's just so much that people can use and get information from and oh or less informed as the case may yes. be <laughs> but it goes back to how bad information yeah bad information but how we form habits and how we build community it's about trust in order to gain trust you have to have some empathy with somebody right you have have to have some experience with them you had to have spoke to them or seen them and if you haven't done that then you're going to trust the person on youtube who at least replies to your email or at least replies to your facebook comment and i know for example that you and i both uh, strive in the facebook groups to answer people's questions mm -hmm. uh, regardless of whether we think the question is helpful or not both of you and i we tend to give an answer even if we may not agree with the point of view that the person's expressing but if we if one doesn't do that, then they will go to YouTube and they will look for somebody who is going to respond to their questions. And with the algorithms that are built into Facebook and to YouTube and to Twitter, they're only going to see the news that uh, suits them in the end. So they then strive towards the say video that is not informing them. And then subsequently, every video that they see 
is a very similar approach. And then they believe a lot of people believe this form mm -hmm. and that it's a conspiracy because all they ever see on YouTube is say something about a flat earth because of the way the algorithm goes right. and because they don't have access, access to more academic material. That could backfire as uh, we might have failures of rationality along the way and just uh, going with people who happen to just be more responsive or being just swept up by a certain community or ideology or thought process without really investigating it from all different angles. Absolutely. I mean, people, for example, there's a lot of criticism. And I know you and I have had some brought up that criticism about John writing about John Peterson. But John Peterson is very good at uh, one particular thing, and that's engaging with his people. He has recognized rightly or wrongly, like what group of people respond well to him. He has addressed their issues. Now, you know, we may not agree with everything or the way that he addresses every single issue, but the fact that he has opened himself up to address those issues by those concerned and those following him is exactly why he's so popular. It's not because he has the best ideas necessarily. It's not because he's necessarily the most intelligent, but he is very accessible. Call my colleagues here in Lisbon and say, well, that is something that we have to do. We also have to make our work accessible. We also have to show that we're interested in the people. They're not our hamsters that we don't really have to explain anything to. They're investing in us through their taxes. They're paying for the science. Surely the, le the least we could do is where we can open up our work, like in terms of open access papers, and where we can't go on podcasts. But even getting colleagues of mine to go on podcasts, like, well, why would you want to do that? That's a huge investment. Because otherwise, what am I doing in the world? Just propagating knowledge for what sake? To prop up the ivory tower? But there are mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of scientists will say, well, that's my job. My job is to show other scientists that I'm knowledgeable. So right. that has to change. I'm hoping that changes, but that's a slow, slow process. That's a really big focus on stoicism too. And while information for information's sake isn't really good if you're not applying it, if you're not using it, if you're not helping others that go, go out in the world and share the knowledge, help others, benefit yourself in the process as well. As you expose yourself to other people and you'll hear those criticisms and you're not just standing in your own ideological bubble. Exactly. And with the Neanderthals, there was a lot of ideological bubbles. I had them. I mean, when I started the work, I thought, would we put Neanderthals in the zoo? That was my question. That was the first question that I made. So if I felt that we should put Neanderthals in the zoo, perhaps, and then only through sitting there through hours and hours of research, then realizing maybe I was completely wrong about Neanderthals. When you go to the Wikipedia pages on Neanderthals, it's not very helpful either. There's a lot of outdated information. And my question is, where are the paleoanthropologists putting this information out there? So even scientists who want to, you know, you want to start somewhere, we go to Wikipedia to start, you know, we don't end there where the general public might, but we go there. And if that's not shared or not updated, then we have that problem. So it's not only an ideological bubble because somebody's in it, somebody's ignorant, but because there's not the lack, again, the lack of cooperation and collaboration is broken down. Instead of having shared knowledge, it's, it turns into camps of knowledge or camps of ideology. Mm. Ideology really stems from which knowledge you apply to your life and what you feel to be appropriate. And we as Stoics need to say, truth belongs to everyone. As a Stoic, there is no left wing versus right wing particularly. There is reason and rationality and irrational, regardless of who's saying it. My question to you would be, what would you use the, the paper for? Because there was a lot of questions like, what do you want me to do with the paper? So I'd like to ask, like, what would you use or what would you get out of the paper? Yeah, I think we could think about some of the better qualities of species, of ourselves, and look to continue to work on those. So yes, if we have that awareness of others, we see that others are like us, then perhaps that can really help us in identifying with others and meeting people where they're at, something that I can apply in my counseling work and working with students, working with families, and trying to understand their perspective, where they're coming from, to help guide them along the way. I think that can 
can be really helpful. Something that really makes us human, as you mentioned earlier, is having that empathy, having that wanting to help others. And my last question, would: what do you think that Seneca would say, for example, if you presented him the information about Neanderthal? Do you think he would say they were rational enough to be human? Yeah, you know, in Seneca's thought, there's some perspectives on not getting involved in the practice of butchery, right? He, he talks about some animal welfare issues and having more of a vegetarian approach to life. And perhaps with some information that we have now, perhaps he would even modify his perspective to have a more ethical diet and to not inflict such harm on other species, other animals, especially if they're exhibiting some traits of rationality. And even in the text, he talks about not being a slave to past teachers and to continue building on their information, to continue to question. And yes, again, take information wherever it comes from, even if it's from rival philosophical schools or from people we happen to disagree with on many topics. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's a great ending to the, to the podcast. All right, very good. So on a scale of one to 10 were Neanderthals rational, where would you put of 10 being absolutely yes and one being absolutely not? I think I would put it at like an eight. I'm very reluctant to uh, be able to stand say 10 because I'm, I'm not a Neanderthal. So how I view their rationality, it cannot be a 10. I can never mm-hmm. really truly know if they were. But I do think that they gave us enough evidence to suggest that yes, they had an understanding of what it was to hold two thoughts at the same time to build some kind of symbolism in the way they bury their dead or the way that they revered, say, the earth or spirit, we don't know exactly what, or the way that they communicated uh, with each other, or the ability that they had to communicate, certainly, and the ability to care for injured members, despite the fact that there was no uh, advantage of doing so, certainly to me it would be an eight. And I think that the stake world uh, should then... Uh, readjust how they think of animals, not in terms of animal versus plants, say vegan versus meat eater, but certainly in terms of rationality, like how rational is this animal and should I not try to look after their habitat so that they can survive, so that, that we can enjoy animals that are more closely linked in terms of rationality to ourselves, for example, the dolphins and whales, which are really having their habitat destroyed and therefore can't live. It would be such a shame as a strike to lose them just because we misunderstand their sense of rationality and their sense of belonging to this earth. All right. Very good. And conversations like this can continue as listeners can comment on the episode wherever it happens to be linked if they want to contact you as well. I'll leave information in the show notes with your contact information. Can you also say in the podcast, how can people, where can people reach you? I'm in the, so I'm in the main stoic group on Facebook. So if you're in there, so in Stokes for Justice, a lot of you are in there in terms of animal, sort of animal welfare, or please contact me on the email addresses that are in the paper papers that Justin will leave in the show notes. That's the easiest way to get hold of me, alternatively at Kai Whiting on Twitter. So that's K-A-I, Kai Whiting, W-H-I-T-I-N-G. All right, very good. And they can also connect with you through Facebook, through Twitter and other channels. Yeah, I try to make myself most available because as a stoic, like I said, I feel that my obligation as a member of the scientific community is to not only make my research available, but make myself available. So, for example, you can uh, hear me at StoicCon 2018 in London, September 29th. Oh, wow. That's that's coming up. All right. Very good. All right. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, perhaps we'll have you on for a third time with another paper that will be coming up. Well, if it would be, I think that would be, be, be on education. So, yeah, we'd have a lot to talk about there, too. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal 
To access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordano's symphonic metal group Fairyland from their album Score to a New Beginning. Find more information in the show notes. Raise yourself for the